This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Sam Chandon. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. The Real Estate Hour airs at noon Eastern every Friday, and immediately following our show at 1 p.m. Eastern, stay tuned to Business Radio for Behind the Markets, hosted by Professor Jeremy Siegel and Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Schwartz. As always, you can access our past shows using the SiriusXM On Demand feature. If you have a question during today's discussion, please do give us a call at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. You can also email your questions to businessradio at SiriusXM.com. In the years that have followed the great financial crisis, the net lease sector, which includes properties where the tenant covers taxes, maintenance, and insurance in addition to rent, has seen a surge in investor interest. Increasing threefold since 2009, net lease investment volume reached almost $19 billion last year, according to research firm Real Capital Analytics. Later in today's program, I'll be joined by Jim Komen, managing principal and founder of Elmtree Funds. Since Elmtree's inception, the firm has focused on relationships with investment-grade net lease tenants like FedEx, developers, and other market participants to successfully develop and acquire over $5 billion of assets. Jim and I will discuss the rise of the net lease investment sector over the last eight years and the outlook for 2018. First on today's program, the single-family housing market. According to real estate brokerage firm Redfin, Home prices were up 8.9% in March as compared to a year earlier. That easily outpaces wage growth for the median American family. In spite of higher prices, homeowners do not appear to be in any rush to become sellers. The tally of homes for sale in March was down almost 12% from a year earlier, and sales volume, well, that was down 3.7%. With me to discuss the current state of the residential housing market, I'm joined by Dr. Neela Richardson. Neela is the chief economist at Redfin and a great friend of the program. Neela is a widely respected and oft-quoted economist, serving previously at Freddie Mac, the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, where she was a member of the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform rulemaking team, as well as most recently, Bloomberg Government. Neela, thanks for coming back to the program. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for the kind introduction. Well, in your latest market report, prices in March up 8.9% from a year ago. We've spoken in the past about constraints in the supply of new homes as being one of the drivers of these big price increases. Is that still the dominant driver of trends now? It's in both sides of the market. There's constraints in the new construction and there's constraints in existing. And so, yes, all in through and through, the market is inventory constrained. There's a multi-year drought underplay. It's going to extend through 2018 and beyond. Can you tell us a little bit about what's driving that supply constraint in terms of new construction in particular? You know, it's a lot of chicken and the egg. We're basically chasing our own tails in the housing market. We need people to to list their homes, but there's nothing for them to buy, so they're not listing. And that starts in in the chicken and egg scenario. It starts in the new construction side. Uh, New construction, according to the home builders, should be about 900,000 single-family homes this year. Well, 
the market demand is way greater than that. The market could easily, you know, have enough demand to support 1.2, 1.3, dare I say 1.5 million new homes hitting the market this year. So there's a huge mismatch. Um, and the builders have pointed to the same things that just keep um, regurgitating in the market. Short labor supply. Uh, there's not enough skilled construction workers still. Uh, trouble getting land and lots, and a lot of that they point to uh, zoning regulation. And now they're seeing lending constraints as interest rates rise. So the three L's continue to, uh, you know, uh, scare the the new construction away from the market. Well, in terms of the things you're describing, those don't sound like things where we would see any kind of immediate relief, even as sort of, you know, evidence is mounting that, you know, those supply constraints are having a real impact on the market. You know, with something like skilled labor, you know, that that's not a challenge or, or, or shortfall in supply that we could address, you know, in the short term. What is the outlook for, you know, the next year or two? Is there any relief? You're absolutely correct. There are no quick fixes. And so that's what we expect to see, a slow, trudging, begrudging increase in single-family home starts, even though you know prices are rising, even though builder confidence is high. And it should be high. They're seeing all the demand. They're seeing that millennials want to buy new construction townhouses. They're seeing a, a lot of what's uh, an increase in household formation. Uh, what we're not seeing, though, is any relief in these uh, supply log jams. So it's going to be a slow increase, uh, for sure. So I, I can certainly understand how, in the aftermath of you know the housing boom and you know during the bust period, you know the idea of entering the construction industry, if you were entering the workforce for the first time, becoming you know part of that pool of skilled construction labor, w wouldn't necessarily look like a terribly attractive opportunity. But now where we do have these shortfalls where we see sort of very meaningful wage growth in the construction sector, you know, is that having, you know, the expected uh, impact in terms of, you know, drawing some people into the industry? You would think it would, uh, but we're not seeing the same draw because, one, where the, the skilled workers have come from traditionally is outside the country. 30% of new construction workers are from, uh, are foreign-born, mainly from Mexico and Central America. And since uh, the downturn, we haven't seen them come back until the skilled trades. And uh, in terms of policy threat, an immediate policy threat is immigration policy that restricts the movement of this, these types of workers into the country. And so, you know, that's one area where it's, again, no quick fix. And how do we get uh, folks that our non-U.S. residents back into U.S. housing construction. And then, you know, it, it is a difficult job. It's, a, it's a, one of the few sectors in the United States that hasn't seen a productivity increase. You know, you're still using a hammer and a nail to build a house on site. Uh, it's still labor intensive. And we haven't seen the, the productivity increases that we've seen in other markets. And because it's so labor intensive, it's really hard to get the skilled labor you need. Sure. I think we we have spoken on previous shows uh, about, you know, foreign policy, trade policy, you know, having a potentially very direct impact on, on housing market outcomes. When we've had colleagues from the National Association of Home Builders, we've you know, talked a little bit about, you know, how the informal labor market, uh, you know, plays a role in driving, you know, some, some of those uh, costs in construction. Uh, but another thing that we raised uh, was the pr prospects for, um, you know, uh, trade disputes with Canada as relates to, to softwood lumber, uh, where it's not just the labor, you know, those construction materials get more expensive as well. 
tariffs in labor and now new tariffs in steel is translating into higher home prices for the consumer. Um, that's for sure. So the new construction industry is getting it from all sides, really. They're getting it from trade policy. Um, they're getting it from fed, federal pro policy on immigration, and they're getting it from local zoning regulation. All of these are adding up and making it very hard to build, especially in the starter home range where first-time buyers have a lot of demands. So when we look at the multifamily sector, we, we haven't seen these same kinds of constraints playing out in the same way. We've had very meaningful increases in multifamily supply, particularly in the urban cores. I'm wondering what's different about multifamily. Um, is it that you know municipalities and regulation favors the higher density? Is it that you know the returns are so high that it still made sense to push forward with multifamily projects? You know, perhaps differences in you know the materials and methods of construction. Uh, but why that difference? It was a bigger margin coming out of the recession. Um, there was a lot of concern in the builders' parts after building up Phoenix and Las Vegas and Florida and all these sand states where they lost a lot of money. There was a lot of overbuilding in single family. So there was a reluctance to go back into that market. Multifamily was a safer bet. Rental housing had higher returns. Um, probably some help from uh, specific zoning regulations. But what's important to note is multifamily is decreasing. We didn't see that increase last month, but the expectation is that the apartment building boom has peaked and it's going to be declining um, year over year from now on, the rate. And so what, where the real growth area is, is the one that is most challenged, and that's single-family building. So when we are looking at you know those instances where the sales you know, really are happening, um, you know, in spite of your know, sales activity uh, being down, uh, I see from the report that the median sale price in March of 2018 uh, was $297,000. Who are the buyers in this market today? There's plenty of demand in the market. I mean, if you're just talking about a snapshot, which is what this monthly report is of, of demand and sales and transactions, then the problem is not demand. We see demand at Redfin. We see demand from millennials. We see demand from their parents. We see demand from foreign buyers, um, urban professionals, uh, trade-up buyers moving into the suburbs. So it's still the traditional uh, buyers and now, now investors uh, in certain segments of the market that are demanding uh, homes. What we're not seeing and what's challenging for the future is, is a decrease in affordability that generates new demand from new first-time buyers. Right. So when we are looking at sort of that profile and the demographics of, of, of those new buyers, talk to me about the millennials. You know, on, certainly, you know, as you and I have discussed, you know, a big part of the narrative on the multifamily side over the course of this cycle has been uh, this notion that millennials um, – We'll always want to be renters. Um, we'll always want to be urban. We'll always want walkability. Uh, and it's almost as if uh, because millennials will always be millennials, irrespective of how old those millennials are, uh, there, there, there's some you know, permanence to this uh, d desire to live downtown. What do we see the oldest millennials doing? They're doing what their parents did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's going to be some changes. And the reason why there's going to be changes is because they're so large. So they have the, the ability to change the housing market just like boomers did. But in terms of life events, marriage, jobs, having children, they react in fairly predictable ways. Uh, ways. And I think the nuances, though, are there is this desire for shorter commutes and more walkability. 
that's a trend that's actually cross-generational. We see that everywhere. But builders are really picking up on this millennial preference in terms of building new townhouses closer to transit. Now, they may not be in the urban core because that's expensive. It's expensive for millennials as well. But in these urban, what I call at Redfin, what we call urban suburbs, you're seeing um, new townhouse construction uh, closer to transit and walkable to the coffee shop and the places that millennials like to, to, to gather. Right. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Neela Richardson, Chief Economist at Redfin. So when we're talking about sort of, you know, transportation, uh, you know, walkability, short commutes, all, all being things that are important, you know, I'm wondering, you know, living in New York City, you certainly are familiar uh, with the New York market as well. You know, what are the implications of you know, millennials and others you know, prioritizing things like ease of commute, proximity to work, you know, in a city like New York, other older cities where we're seeing pretty significant deterioration in infrastructure. Infrastructure is huge. Um, A lot of the problems in housing have solutions outside of housing. You can't just fix the housing market. You have to fix all the things that support the housing market. And I would put infrastructure, not just roads and good transit, but also schools. Um, What we're seeing is highly ranked schools, neighborhoods with highly ranked schools have really high house prices. But if you had uh, better quality schools everywhere, (laughs) you wouldn't put so much pressure on these neighborhoods with with highly ranked schools in terms of prices. So it's it's from commuting to education to even access to health care. This is all determined by where you live. Um, And as long as we start, we keep rationing these public goods by location, we're going to see these spikes in prices that make things unaffordable. So to get back to your original question, yes, infrastructure has a huge role to play in affordability. And the longer we keep uh, our infrastructure in the state that it is, the worse it translates in terms of the housing market. Yeah, so let's let's build on this uh, question of affordability. You know, as compared to a year ago, um, you know, where are we today? It's just getting you know more expensive to own. Uh, <laughs> there was a recent report by by our friends at CoreLogic, which shows that the monthly payment is expected to grow by sixteen percent this year. If you add high, slightly higher mortgage rates and really strong price appreciation, that the typical pay monthly payment is going to grow by double digits. And just to put, I I like to tell stories. And I'm going to tell you the most extreme story I've heard (laughs) from a Redfin real estate agent. Um, This is about a millennial who was buying in the San Francisco Bay Area. His offer was the winning offer out of five, but it was 500,000 over the asking price with no contingencies. That's extraordinary. Wait, um, wait, wait. There's one more sentence oh. here. <laughs> he also included a letter from his parents that detailed all of their assets and their willingness to help them out. Now, we all love our children, but how many of us are willing to share that with a perfect stranger? That's how competitive the housing market is. So when you talk about these homes selling above asking, I see in the Redfin reporting, uh, nearly one in four homes uh, in the most recent report did sell above asking price. Just give me some benchmark and rules of thumb. If 25% of homes, 24% of homes are selling above asking price, is that a high number? 25% 25% is a high number, yes. So uh, it, we think that that number may even creep. We're, we're just in the beginning of the year, um, and we had a really early 
Easter that affected new listings. As we head towards the summer buying season, we expect that number to creep up from between 25 and 30 percent of the of the market going above list. So, what kinds of trade offs are people having to make? You know, given you know the the pace of appreciation, given the relatively more lackluster pace of of wage and income growth. Uh, you know, what is it that we're spending less on? Because I imagine for you know a good number of families, you know the discretionary component of your income, you know is not that large. Um, so you know, you're not able to make up for all of this you know deterioration in affordability by you know passing on a on a big vacation. How are we paying? Uh, savings is one thing I think that we're passing on. Uh, savings is now the house, and for some people that is a a good vehicle in terms of. Uh, having a forced kind of monthly payment or a forced savings that leads to home equity. It doesn't work in every market, but for the strongly appreciating markets, it does. Um, I think we're seeing millennials do things like take a second job, um, <laughs> drive for Uber or Lyft, for example. And so the gig economy actually has become a support for the housing market. Uh, Airbnb is also something that people are turning to or renting out part of their of their homes and that's easier to do than ever before. What kind of impact have we seen on let's say the rental market as a result of has there been sort of you know an impact that's more than anecdotal with something like Airbnb? Are are there markets where you know I, I hear anecdotally you know people buying condos in an already tight market, uh, but to essentially make it available on Airbnb, um, and that constraining supply and housing opportunity. Yeah, I, I think that those kinds of opportunities that didn't exist 10 years ago are making it more, maybe not more lucrative to invest in real estate, but easier. It's hard to be a landlord. It's hard to have a one-year contract with someone who hopefully will <laughs> hold up their end and, and pay you rent every month. It's easier to rent something um, through an app, maybe for a weekend, you have a lot more control over that asset and, and when and, and, and for how long it's, it's tied up. Um, and you can change prices rather quickly with new demand. So because of those tech, technological improvements in something that people have been doing all along, it, it's actually uh, more convenient in some instances to, to purchase a, a, a condo and do an Airbnb as opposed to just a long-term lease. Another aspect of the affordability uh, discussion, I feel like all of us uh, have spent countless hours modeling or thinking about the impact of rising interest rates on you know the, the housing and real estate markets generally. Uh, and this has been sort of an ongoing topic of discussion um, you know, for, for most of the recovery. I saw a fascinating report. And I have to say, I, I love the real-time research site at Redfin. I'm, I looked at a report that you posted just recently uh, that says just 6% of home buyers would cancel their plans uh, if mortgage rates climbed above 5%. Mm -hmm. Is there that much in, in inelasticity in the demand? You know, we have to remember that even as we're going to get headlines as out today, even that Treasury yields are, are rising and interest rates are, are growing, um, rates are still dirt cheap. Yep. <laughs> I mean, they're still under 5%. 5% is a very low rate. And I think home buyers recognize that they're in a, a good financing market. So um, rates aren't the deterrent in today's market. Prices are. Inventory is. It's not about rates yet. Uh, and so rates are, are secondary in, in terms of concern. And that's why we see that there's still high demand def despite slightly increasing interest rates.
So it's rates, uh, not sorry, it's, it's not rates, it's more, you know, supply inventory issues. What about the ease of being able to qualify for a mortgage? How does that look today? It's still difficult to qualify if you have less than pristine credit. And, and what's also important to consider is how fast the market is. Last year was the fastest market we've ever seen in terms of days on market. This year, days on market, um, homes are, are under contract seven days less on average than they were last year. And I see that in your report, you show months supply at 2.8. Mm-hmm. Give some context around what that number means. 2.8 is months of supply. So we used to say in a healthy market, and I'll, I'll say why, it's, why I think it should be used to say, that um, a balanced market between buyers and sellers was around six months of supply, that there was enough housing uh, on, on the market for six months of, of, of sales at the current demand. I think that that number is naturally lower now because of all of the technolo- technological improvements, both in the um, for sale side and in the mortgage side. I think that number is closer to five, maybe even four and a half. But the point is, at two point, what did we say? Two point eight. Two point eight. Yep. <laughs> it's still too low, and in some markets, um, we've seen months of supply drop to near one month of supply six weeks of supply in Oakland at one point. So that number might decrease as we head into the summer months. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Neela Richardson, Chief Economist at Redfin. So, Neela, when we're, you, you mentioned Oakland a moment ago. Is it still the case that, you know, like the last time we spoke, a, a lot of the heat in the market is concentrated in the Bay Area? and in Seattle, um, and in some of the other major tech markets? Yeah, the West Coast markets are in a league of their own in terms of prices uh, and price growth. In San Jose, which has been off the charts uh, the last few months, prices were up over 30% year over year in March. That's just craziness. Um, and it's because of so much of the, the tech investment in that city. So yes, the West Coast is is in the league of their own, but we're also seeing um, price increases in the Rust Belt. This is widespread. Places like Detroit, for example, uh, even Pennsylvania has seen a steady and sometimes double-digit increases in prices. Why? Because what's transacting is, is you, in these places are places that have been renovated. They're in places of renewal and growth, and they're getting a high dollar now, uh, higher than they used to. And it's interesting that you mentioned Detroit. We've had guests on that are active in the Detroit market, either on the policy side or, you know, one in particular, very, very large online lender, you know, based in the middle of Detroit. Uh, And it's, I, I love the story about you know, that's describing sort of, you know, that urban renaissance that they're experiencing. Uh, my concern always, of course, is that, uh, you know, we don't want to see families priced out of their neighborhoods at the same time, you know, as that gentrification is occurring. Um, what, talk to me about one other thing, you know, that, again, I'm reading about uh, on, uh, you know, the, the, the real-time research website. Um, impact of tax reform. You, you posted a brief in December. You wrote that, Home buyers will leave high tax states if the SALT deductions are eliminated. So it's not quite as clear cut as that. Uh, they didn't get eliminated, but they got capped in a way that I think is impacting a lot of us in New York. Uh, what, what's your feeling on uh, tax reform and how it's going to impact some of these markets? Right now, I think it's too soon to tell. I think we'll see the rubber meet the road um, 
the summer again when we've had six full months and we're at the at the peak. But you really can't get on a train in New York or New Jersey without hearing someone talk about uh, right. the, the, the cap uh, on taxes. Uh, Particularly and, as we've uh, all just filled out or filed our taxes. Exactly. exactly. And I think it's going to take a little while for people to understand uh, what's happening with their own tax bills. But yes, uh, over time, I think you will see a bit of a drag on prices because now it's just become more expensive to buy in these high-cost, high-tax burden um, markets. Also, I think that you're, you might see some movement in, in the trans- transaction side of the market from slightly less lower tax counties to higher tax counties. People are going to be settling with, you know, if I, it's about the same house and about the same neighborhood, which one has a slightly lower tax uh, rate? And you'll see a bit more demand in those markets. Right. So, is there any currency to the argument that um, you know this is, provides a, a meaningful incentive for states like New York uh, to become more efficient in you know revenue generation in expenditures? Uh, you know, given you know the political context of that discussion, uh, I have to take a step back and and ask an expert such as yourself whether you know that has uh, a meaningful basis in in you know real economic analysis. I can't think of a context in which efficiency in tax codes wouldn't be a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to answer unequivocally yes to that question. But, you know, real estate is such an important part of tax revenue in these places. There are cities and suburbs all over the outside of New York City proper whose tax base falls on homeowners. You know, there's not a big corporation to draw from. And so, yes, it's going to require a rethink, not just in NYC itself, but in these local areas that have their own schools and police departments and fire departments, whether or not that's efficient and maybe shared resources would be a better outcome for the residents of those places. I want to take us back for a moment to uh, the Bay Area, and you mentioned you know San Jose, you know being in a league of its own in terms of you know, some of what we're seeing with price appreciation. Whether it's you know San Jose, whether it's you know Seattle, or again some of the other you know really uh, hot tech markets, you know, is there a risk here that uh, you know these markets are so dependent on the tech sector that uh, we could see you know a significant uh, deterioration in outcomes? You know, if there's a if there's a slowdown in tech, I think the greater risk than a slowdown at in tech is the risk that tech talent leaves the area because it's just too expensive to live there, and we're already seeing that in our search data at Redfin. We're seeing big gains in the number of people who are in in these high high demand West Coast markets, or I should say expensive West Coast markets looking elsewhere. So I think that's a much more immediate effect than an actual slowdown in Apple or Google or Facebook. Um, yes, they've fallen onto a little bit of regulatory scrutiny, but um, I don't see in the future of those tech companies a meaningful uh, decline in house prices as a result of their, of their business activity. All right, so we're talking about on one hand sort of you know issues around affordability for folks that may be working for a company like Google or Apple at you know um, at their own particular place in the you know, household income spectrum, uh, but also you know households that are facing you know, real constraints and affordability challenges that that may be renters one day aspiring to become homeowners. Um, I know in the past you've had recommendations for folks in Washington around some of the things that you know the Secretary of HUD might do. Uh, to help alleviate some of these challenges, even if you know the returns on 
you know, those, uh, you know, uh, policy investments are not immediate. Uh, what are some of the things that we might do? Well, first is infrastructure, which we talked about before, providing good transit so that not everyone has to uh, live on top of each other to have a short commute to work. So the infrastructure bill is promising. Um, of course, the devil's in the details. The second thing that I strongly urge is tying um, funding uh, at the local level to uh, relaxing some of these zoning rules. One of my favorite examples is six, Seattle. It's zoned two-thirds single family. That is one of the reasons that prices are so expensive. A change in the zoning rules relaxes the constraints to new building where people see have the highest demand. And so that would go a long way in the housing market. Um, so those are just two. But also I would like to circle back to the idea of the millennial and tech. I mean, tech talent is aging. Tech, tech talent is getting married and starting families. And so there is going to be a real issue on for corporate America in these high-cost state, uh, high-cost cities, about how to keep tech talent now that they've invested so much in it, uh, how to keep it from moving to the center of the country just because they want a better quality of life. Neela, thank you again for joining me on the program. It's so wonderful having you here. Oh, it's always a pleasure. It was wonderful to talk to you. That was Dr. Neela Richardson, Chief Economist at Redfin, previously with Freddie Mac, the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard, and Bloomberg Government. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, I'll be joined by Jim Komen, Managing Principal and Founder at Elm Tree Funds, and we'll be talking all about opportunities for investing in net lease. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by Wharton. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 